The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a warm welcome to this Friday edition of Scorebox. These are your headlines. Ukraine marks a somber anniversary, one year to the day since Russia's invasion. G7 leaders vow more support as nations around the world rally around Ukraine and condemn Moscow's invasion. The S&P 500 breaks a four-day losing streak, but still on pace for its worst week of the year, as JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon tells CNBC the Fed has lost some control on inflation and rates could hit 6%. The Fed will do what it has to do. It's kind of caught up. They're going to pause. We all know that for a while. They should. It may not be enough. And so I, I think people yeah, should like, be a little... The 2% inflation, are you there for that? I think it'll take a while. I, I, think, I just don't think so it'll rates down longer, long higher and longer. Possibly, yeah. Japanese inflation hits a 41-year high, but incoming BOJ governor Kazuo Ueda says the central bank must continue with ultra-low rates. I believe that the current Bank of Japan's monetary policy is appropriate. It's necessary to maintain monetary easing and firmly support the economy in order to create an environment for companies to raise wages. And disgraced former FTX boss Sam Bankman-Fried is hit with new federal charges accused of conspiring to make illegal political donations and commit bank fraud. Well, as I'm sure you're all aware, today marks one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. Thousands of people have been killed, cities destroyed and millions of people displaced. The invasion drew international condemnation, uh, particularly from the Western world, which over the course of the past year stepped up its efforts to isolate Russia, not always successful, as well as to offer more support to Kyiv. In a joint statement to mark the one year anniversary, EU leaders said they will not be passive and will hold the Kremlin to account. Meanwhile, the United States uh, announced a new package of sanctions against Russia. The President Joe Biden will later join a virtual meeting with G7 leaders, as well as Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Alongside political support, military aid to Ukraine became one of the biggest issues for Western leaders over the past year. Countries pledged billions of dollars worth of weapons, equipment and financial aid to Kyiv. Uh, one year since the invasion, the U.S. remains the largest donor, pledging over $30 billion in aid, followed by the United Kingdom and Germany. International organizations were also quick to announce their support for Kyiv. Take a look at some of the key moments of the past year. We are determined to do all we can to support Ukraine. But we have a responsibility to ensure that the war does not escalate beyond Ukraine and become a conflict between NATO and Russia. For the time being, in my opinion, we're not doing nearly enough to fully halt the Russian invasion. We've indeed done enough to blunt the Russian onslaught through the help that we've provided. However, in order to beat them, they need so much more help. Supporting Ukraine's ability to fight off Russian aggression to defend its sovereignty and territorial integrity is a worldwide commitment. We have 
freedom give us wings to protect it. I appeal to you and the world with simple and yet most important words. Combat aircrafts for Ukraine, wings for freedom. So Zelensky is uh, due to speak at 10.30 CET, whilst in Berlin, his German counterpart, uh, President Frank-Walter Steinmeier, uh, will mark the day with a special event. Uh, Aneta is in Berlin with more. Aneta, lovely to see you as ever, and thank you very much indeed for going outside and joining us today. Look, there's no doubt about it. Berlin has had a PR problem throughout this war as well. But very interesting, my read just before that last bit of tape was that Berlin, and I've seen it on the, the federal website as well, remains one of the largest donors and supporters of Ukraine in many ways. So what is Berlin getting wrong in terms of how people are perceiving uh, its support for Ukraine? Nice to see you. Good morning, Steve, to you as well. I think uh, we have to talk about Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, when we talk about uh, the criticism coming from the international scene uh, to, uh, to Germany. Um, because clearly, uh, Olaf Scholz was a reluctant Chancellor, and he was reluctant to send tanks. He's always a bit of reluctant to um, yeah, move. He's not like a first mover, like someone from the United States would be, or from, from other countries. So I guess that's where the criticism comes from. If you look at the sheer numbers, you're completely right. Uh, the German government just today was publishing a, an overview of how much aid they actually channeled to the Ukraine, and that is amounting to 14 billion euro just last year. And there's more to come. Olaf Scholz yesterday in primetime talk show uh, with Margaret Ilner was stepping out saying we keep on um, supporting the Ukraine, we keep on sending money into the Ukraine. And if you look at the number of refugees as well, of course, the biggest number um, of people were fleeing to Poland because of, uh, of, of the geography. Um, but the second biggest country uh, or the second biggest destination for refugees from the Ukraine is Germany. More than 800,000 people uh, did come to the country and uh, 35 5% of them were women and also children or people below 18 years, and they are all uh, well cared of. So that's a big thing here for the German society. At the same time, of course, we need to talk about reconstruction of the Ukraine, and that is actually one of the key topics here today behind me in the palace of the German president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier. He has more or less a ceremonial role in Germany. He's not really like in the execution, but he is, by definition, the highest-ranking official in Germany. And today's event will host a number of talks but the key issue will be how to reconstruct the country. Estimates currently are running between 130 billion uh, euro in damage up to 750 billion euro in damage. And Germany will contribute and is contributing already. Annette, excellent. We'll come back to you a little bit later on the programme. Thank you. Sangaban has posted a revenue beat in full year results alongside record operating income and margin despite cost pressures and economic growth concerns. The French construction group warned it expects a moderate slowdown in new construction in some regions this year, 
Bart said it expects the sector to remain resilient. Uh, Srida N is the CFO of Sangaban and joins us now. Sir, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Always a pleasure to speak to a company that's uh, offsetting a lot of the problems and managing to steer to wider margins. How are you doing it given all those cost pressures? Good. I mean, let me start. Uh, thank you for uh, having me here. Uh, let me start with saying that Sangaban once again delivered record results. And the record in every single financial indicators, sales, operating profits, cash generation, return to the shareholders, any criteria. So this is clearly an outstanding performance. When you look back the last four years, we launched a significant transformation, which actually enabled the group to deliver every single commitment we gave to the financial market. So the power of the transformation, the one simple indicator I would give, today, the group's profit, if you look at, is more than 60% of the profit is coming from North America and emerging countries. Historically, it was perceived as a European company. That's a shift we have done by rotating the portfolio. One third of the sales of the group has been moved in and out in the last four years. The second thing is, we brought this focus on light and sustainable construction. The light and sustainable construction is where the Sangaban is the core strategy, where we are more and more focusing on doing the renovation, which is an energy efficient renovation, trying to bring solutions, shape the market. Today, the world is facing one of the biggest crises of energy. And when you look at if just the example of European Union, you have the purchasing power coming down significantly, even if you just take 100 euro per month per household, we are talking about 230 billion purchasing power coming down. So you can just imagine the impact it can bring. And that's why the Sangaban is positioning more and more and trying to deliver a very compelling solutions. We are confident because of this success, we are very confident to deliver again 2023 a very strong results. There's a, there's a lot in there as well. And look, I was very interested um, in the comparisons you'd put in your, um, your numbers uh, between 2018 and 2022. Can we draw anything about the exponential growth going forward then? Because you've improved free cash flow three times, recurring EPS two times, 540 basis points increase in return on capital employed. Uh, can we extrapolate anything for the next four years? Yes, we did articulate in a very detailed manner our roadmap, a strategy called Grow and Impact in the Capital Market Day. When you look back the last two years, what we did vis-a-vis this roadmap, once again, we delivered every single criteria that the target we set for ourselves. So this is a roadmap basically driven by a country organization where the country CEOs are made accountable to deliver results, look at everything what needs to be done for the country at the country's strength leadership position. This enables Sangamon to actually leverage its real strengths in a given country. I just give you an example of India. India today is the third largest contributor to Sangaban's profit. It didn't exist 25 years back. So this is a very good example, stalking example, where Sangaban didn't exist 25 years back. And today it's a market leader, undisputed market leader in every single thing what we're doing. 
the brand recall of Sangabang is very powerful in India. And we continue to make acquisitions. Recently, we have entered into the insulation market in a full range uh, after acquiring the two uh, local companies. And this is what, you know, this is the best way to see how you can move forward to see that you leverage Sangabang strengths in country and see how the leadership position can be built over a period of time. Shreder, good morning. Now, you mentioned you're uh, ramping up a business in North America. Now, I believe 60% of your earnings come from the region. Um, what are your order books looking like in the United States? And um, are you seeing any uh, signs of a significant slowdown in the U.S.? What's your take on the construction market? You know, I, I continue to remain very optimistic about the U.S. market because structurally it's a very good market. When you look at the housing sector, there is a shortage of close to 4 million. So there is clearly a need, uh, need for more and more housing. It's true that the last quarter we did see some small slowdown, but we just have to be careful that we don't make conclusion based on one quarter performance because the last quarter, it could also have some amount of technical effects when you have a world which is so volatile. There is some amount of adjustments in the distribution stock markets where they then try and see that they anticipate probably the inflation is going to be lower next year. So they try to squeeze their le level of inventory in their, in their stores. So I would not judge based on just one quarter. We have to see interestingly, the, there is a structural need U.S. is a market which continues to welcome immigrants. It's a market which is economically very strong, financially very strong. And Sangabam has a very positive opinion. And that's why we have made a lot of acquisition and we continue to invest. We continue to invest on the new capacity to really serve the market in the best possible manner uh, as compared to the competition. Um, Shreder, interesting insight there. Um, if I may take your attention to a more legacy issue, um, here in the UK, thousands of people are still dealing with the fallout from the cladding issues discovered with Grenfell Tower. Saint-Gobain was one of the suppliers of the materials in the building that had obviously a tragic end. Um, there's a number of people who think you, Saint-Gobain, are should be responsible for uh, funding the resolution of these cladding issues, which will tally into the billions in the UK. What responsibility does Sangoban take here? And is there any scope that you could help provide some of the funds to resolve these issues? You know, in the first place, it's a very sad story. And I think we all feel very terrible about this. Uh, this is the last thing anybody would like to see. But what is important, you have to keep in mind, Sangoban, whatever it supplied, it was very small and it was safe and it was tested many times and it was a safe product. The second thing you need to keep in mind, Sangaban does not design, produce the cladding system. What we do, we just gave one small portion of that. So we are not actually in the, you know, the, the whole installation of cladding system. So I would not say that it's, you know, at the end of the day, we have to be fair to the contribution made to that project. So having said that, Sangama has always been very cooperative. We have been participating in all the conversation, discussions. We are there to help. We are there to contribute. But again, at the end of the day, we are not responsible for this. But at the same time, as a corporate citizen, a responsible corporate citizen, we want to see what best way we can help 
contribute and see how we can make the building safer. I think Sangapal, this is also goes very much close to our heart. We say we want to make the world a better home and we really walk the talk in every aspect of our business. So for me, once again, our products has been saved. We have confirmed, tested many times and we are very small. We're talking about 5 million pounds. It's very small for the whole business in the UK. Treater, thank you for taking the question and all our questions this morning. Treater and CFO of Sangoban. Coming up on Squawk Box, the incoming BOJ governor says rates need to stay lower for longer, while Jamie Dimon tells CNBC U.S. rates could hit 6%. And as we head to break, we will leave you with images from across Europe as buildings light up in the colors of the Ukrainian flag to mark one year of war and uh, some of President Zelensky's speeches around the world as he rallied Western support. We will fight till the end, at sea, in the air. We will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. We will fight in the forests, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. Against all odds and doom and gloom scenarios, Ukraine didn't fall. Ukraine is alive and kicking. Britain, the king, is a, a near force pilot. And in Ukraine today, every air force pilot is a king. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Um, for the sake of this uh, next conversation, 1.3% higher than Nikkei, 349 points to the good. The Hang Seng are losing ground by a similar margin. Right, okay, Japanese CPI inflation hit a 41-year high. We do a lot of this, don't we, in January, notching a 4.2% increase on the year. That is in line with forecasts. It piles more pressure on the country's central bank to tighten its ultra uh, loose monetary policy, but the incoming governor, Kazuo Ueda, told lawmakers this morning that rates should remain low. I believe that the current Bank of Japan's monetary policy is appropriate. It's necessary to maintain monetary easing and firmly support the economy in order to create an environment for companies to raise wages. Well, I mean, uh, uh, and by the way, we didn't say hello to each other. Good morning. We've had a lot of news already. Um, I, I, I think one thing is in life, it's about timing. Mm. Many, many times I've seen a CEO run a company and everyone had a few questions about the company but they thought the ceo was great and they and they thought the company was great so that and that individual would be lauded and then leave the company uh, and then people would start saying well hang on a second 
didn't they do that? And that's left problems for the next guy. And that's left problems for the next lady after that as well. Uh, and we've seen it time and time again. And dare I say it, my own organisation, GE, uh, people lauded to the hills. Jack Welsh, it's almost sacrilege in business communities now to say anything bad about Jack Welsh. It's sacrilege to say anything bad about Jeff Immel who were both my boss at various stages before you joined the company as well. So, you know, you've got to be very careful what I say next. But the fact of the matter is there were seeds of crises laid by Jack Welsh and Jeff mm. Immelt that led to problems at GE, which led to ultimately mm. the breakup of the company. I think it's hard to argue that is not the case. So just bring it back to what's going on at the BOJ. You've got the seeds of a situation of policy left by uh, Harahiko Kuroda, and the BOJ boss who's leaving this year, handing it over to Ada. Uh, and you've got to say, has Ueda been handed the biggest hospital pass of all time uh, for central bankers in the fact that they are locked into a policy which is stunningly difficult to get out of. They have yield curve controls and we saw the market reaction when they widened the band to 50 basis points either side of zero as well from the previous 25. Uh, and it has to be said with inflation picking up, uh, getting towards target according to um, Hariko Kuroda in terms of the way he reads it, but in terms of the way the rest of us read it, way above target uh, in terms of sustainable inflation levels and how on earth do they get out of it? The ramifications as well, once we know the answer to how they get out of it, the ramifications for global bond markets especially could be absolutely enormous. Because if we do see higher yields on JGBs and we do see domestic savers thinking, hang on a second, I'm finally getting return on domestic holdings, Maybe I don't need the international holdings. And bearing in mind that the Japanese are the biggest buyers, pretty much, or one of the biggest buyers with the Chinese, of international bonds, including treasuries, that could have enormous ramifications for the yields of all bonds, let alone JGBs. Mm. What an interesting opener, Steve. And to, before I come back to, to what's happening in Japan, I would argue that the biggest hospital pass of all time, of our time anyway, was probably Olaf Scholz from Chancellor Merkel, when we look right. back at her tenure and the energy yeah. situation that she I think that's a very interesting behind. point. I, w I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. I think that's a separate conversation. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to have that one with you as well. I, I think you make a very interesting observation, and I don't necessarily disagree. Well, well maybe we'll come back to that, but a, a very compelling opener for what's happening in Japan right now. So coming on to that, um, you know, it, it feels like Ueda before he took took over and began his tenure as BOJ governor, it wasn't exactly clear where he was going to go with policy. He's not necessarily considered a dove or a hawk. And right now it feels as though the picture he's trying to paint is one of continuity. So I'm not sure that uh, investors at this stage have a really strong sense of where we go from here. One thing that he did make clear in his opening remarks is that he thinks the recent rise in inflation in Japan has been driven largely by rising uh, raw material costs, not strong demand. So I think in terms of where the economic uh, picture lies in Japan and where it goes next is really uncertain. Yep. Absolutely. And uh, we, we, can, we can talk about Uniqlo and the rest of the, uh, the, the um, wage increases till we're blue in the teeth. But uh, if you haven't seen the uh, Uniqlo story and how they raise wage in Japan, you should take a little look at that one just to see some of those pressures uh, on the incoming governor at the Bank of Japan. Excellent. Right. Let us move on. U.S. weekly jobless claims. Well, weakness in the jobs market. Yeah. High interest rates. No. U.S. weekly jobless claims fell, fell by 3,000 to 192,000. That is a fraction below expectations, but high enough to nudge the four-week moving average higher. Secondary claims fell by 
37,000 to 1.65 million. Right, uh, a rally, Juliana, but not uh, enough of a dent in the declines that we've seen overall in the week. That's right. So week to date, we are still down across all three of the major indices. Stateside, the Dow is down about 2% on the week coming into today's session. S&P down about 1.6% and the Nasdaq down by about 1.7%. But yes, the positive momentum did begin to gather yesterday with all three of the majors ending higher. Breaking it down by sector, seven of the 11 sectors in the S&P were positive in the session, led by technology. And we had NVIDIA yeah, sharply in focus, the chip maker hitting a 10-month high after they delivered an upbeat sales forecast, a major player in the AI space, and obviously tons of hype around that part of the technology uh, sphere over the last weeks. Now turning to treasuries, we also saw some interesting action in yields yesterday. Treasury yields moving lower in yesterday's session with spreads narrowing. Right now we've got the 10-year trading at about 3.86%, the two-year trading up at just about 4.7%. And all all eyes today data-wise on the PCE inflation print, which is due out stateside this afternoon. We're going to dive into what to expect in just a moment on that front. Before, let's take a look at U.S. dollar crosses. We've got sterling um, uh, holding steady versus the dollar right now. Euro also uh, off to a flat start versus the greenback. 105.96 is the level. And here in the UK, we're trading around 120. Some really interesting in consumer confidence data out of the UK overnight. Hopefully, we'll have a chance to chat through those numbers later in Squawk Box. Um, but the takeaway there, consumer confidence actually pretty resilient. Surprising to many. Steve. Right, super. The Fed's preferred inflation gauge is due out today. The personal consumption expenditures price index. What a mouthful. Let's just call it PCE, shall we? Uh, is expected to show 4.3% inflation in the 12 months to January, whilst the core rate is expected to show a 4.4% increase on the year and 0.5% gain on the month. Now, um, let's go to JP Morgan Chase's CEO, Jamie Dimon. He's made some interesting comments. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I have a view on this, and I'll, I'll come to that very briefly afterwards. But the J.P. Morgan Chase CEO, Jamie Dimon, says the U.S. economy is doing well, but the Fed still has work to do in order to contain inflation, telling CNBC rates may hit as high as 6%. I have all, all respect for Jay Powell, uh, but you know the fact is we lost a little bit of control of inflation. Models didn't pick that up. I've always been suspicious of models, and when right. we use them extensively, I always say, well, you use a little bit of judgment, too. Uh, and there's been a sea change. Governments are borrowing a lot of money, and you've got to incorporate that in what's taking place. That means they're spending it. That's inflationary. Wages, we haven't, we've seen come down, but not so much. Right. Oil and gas will probably be going up because, you know, the investment has been curtailed. It's very interesting how people interpret what he said. He said that the, the Fed, uh, we lost a little bit of control of inflation. Um, and he's absolutely right. But I think, actually, they're getting back in control of inflation. Mm. So I think... Whilst, yes, Jamie Dimon's right, I think what he means is that they lost it by having this year in the wilderness talking about transition. And now they seem very much on track in trying to uh, focus very heavily on that. Of course, there are many commentators, including many who work for CNBC, who believe the Fed is going too far. I think Jamie Dimon, in addition to the inflation comments, what was interesting from his um, remarks yesterday was around the recession risk. And he seemed a lot more upbeat or less downbeat, should I say, than he was uh, in the autumn of last year. Uh, He was predicting a recession stateside in six to nine months back in around October time last year. We're approaching that time frame and he's sitting there saying the U.S. economy is still 
incredibly strong. And at the time, I think a lot of the risk that he saw stemmed from Russia, Ukraine and the possibility that things really um, deteriorated and the energy situation in Europe he saw as a major risk. And none of those things really materialize in a major way. And my sense listening to those comments is that he's not as downbeat as he yeah. expected to be. Uh- Jamie Dimon is always worth listening to, and I have a stunning amount of respect, as I should do for him as well. But let's not beat about the bush. He gets it wrong as much as the rest of us. I mean, you know, we're not quite at $175 a barrel, which was his call in the middle of last year. So, you know, great guy, great to listen to, stunningly successful banker, one of the best out there. But he makes a few calls that are a little bit off the mark as as much as the rest of us. Uh, Moving on, this is an interesting story from a man who's a little bit off the mark. That's right. In the crypto space, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is facing four new criminal charges, including ones related to commodities fraud and making unlawful political contributions. A source familiar with the new accounts told CNBC that Bankman-Fried could face an additional 40 years in prison if convicted in his case, where he is accused of multiple schemes to defraud. His associates, FTX co-founder Gary Wang and ex-Alameda CEO Caroline Ellison, have pled guilty to multiple charges and have vowed to testify against him. Yeah, I wonder if he's going to tweet his way out of this one again, or actually his lawyers finally told him to shut up and just be careful. I don't know. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.